1: On Commons People this week, Freedom Day gets delayed. There is a real possibility that the virus will outrun the vaccines and that thousands more deaths would ensue that could otherwise have been avoided. Tory MPs aren't happy.
2: I never believed that it was proportionate, even from the outset, for ministers to take such liberties with our liberty.
1: And it might get worse for them after a key blue wall by-election. If you're in Cheshire and Amersham, please do vote Conservative in this by-election. Hello, and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh, and joining me this week is Paul War. Hi, Arj. Hi, Paul. And we've got the Liberal Democrat health spokesperson, Manira Wilson. Hi, Arj. Hi, Manira. How are you?
2: I'm very well. How are you?
1: Yes, very well, thanks. But this was the week that Boris Johnson confirmed what had been looking inevitable for a while by delaying the final exit from COVID restrictions by four weeks. So Freedom Day has been pushed back from June the 21st to July the 19th, leaving Tory backbenchers furious with 51 rebelling against the extension of restrictions. Part of the problem is the rebels simply don't believe the prime minister will stick to the new date. But let's hear Michael Gove on that.
0: Yes, and the data shows that um, we should be in a position to have vaccinated so many people um, uh, by uh, that date in July uh, that we will be able to lift restrictions. Now, you you know, none of us can predict the future with 100% certainty. There could be something bizarre and unprecedented that occurs.
1: Paul, Gove said it would take something bizarre and unprecedented for the new date to slip. Do you believe him?
0: Oh, there's an odd choice of words saying it's like something bizarre. Um, and unprecedented, because we've been here before, yeah, the whole point of de- rolling over this day is actually the fact that, yes, there was a new variant that came along, the Indian variant, the Delta variant, which is really, really trans- highly transmissible, very, very infectious, more than 50% greater infectious rate, and um, who knows whether there will be another variant. Now, they've given themselves a bit of wriggle room for if there is another, you know, Vietnam variant forever, or for example, um, but... It's that language, something bizarre and unprecedented. I'm I'm not quite sure what he was getting at there. I think what lies behind it is that basically they think some of the sage modelling has been too pessimistic and that hasn't taken into account updated evidence on the efficacy of the vaccines, which seem to be, thank goodness, really, really... brilliant at uh, combating even the Delta variant. So two jabs means that you've got a very, very good chance of, of surviving that um, variant with both AstraZeneca and Pfizer. So I think what they're going to do, and there's been reports in the last few days that actually revise down some of their, their death estimates and actually think that it Britain can cope if, if more people are jabbed. But I have to say, one of the big problems with that um, phrase the terminus date that the Prime Minister used this Monday was it just sounded so fixed, it sounded actually quite rigid and it sounded like a date not data driven approach which despite all the rhetoric that they've come out with since Monday, that seems to be the real significance of Monday, which is it's no longer a before date. It's it's this is by a by date. So it's a sell by date effectively that July 19th. And that traps him. I think it paints him into a corner a bit too much. Obviously there is the counter case that actually if you hold lockdown restrictions for even longer, as some academics have said, then it can be counterproductive. But um, I don't know, I think it's going to be quite interesting to see the next few days. Let's all hope that the vaccines do bend that curve and we see the first estimates of it. Today, we've seen some new figures, though, that's showing there's a doubling every 11 days. So, you know, it's going to take a bit of time for anyone to get any real optimism, I think.
1: Yeah, Munira, the the Lib Dems abstained on the vote on extending restrictions. Um, What's that all about? And what do you make of the kind of new... Um, situation we're in with this terminus date and, and as Paul said uh, uh, dates not data perhaps
2: well um, I mean first of all uh, I was very unhappy about the situation we found ourselves in yesterday like most of the country because I think it was completely avoidable let's be clear about it it was a political decision not to put India on the red list sooner which allowed the delta variant to cede into the community and as I've made the point to Matt Hancock on Monday night and as per usual (laughs) avoided answering the question there was then a 17 delay between him deciding it was a variant of concern and it actually being designated as such which has meant we didn't get the surge testing which potentially might have contained it further uh, for 17 days after he announced it was a variant of concern and I'm not clear why there was that delay so that uh, first of all we shouldn't have been in this situation the reason we uh, abstained was because if you are going to continue to ask Uh, the British public and businesses up and down the country to make huge sacrifices to to protect all of us. There are certain sectors that are particularly hard hit by the ongoing social distancing restrictions and the ongoing restrictions on international travel Um, and there is insufficient support for them and we're hearing you know every day about businesses potentially on the brink of going under and I think you can't ask people to make those sorts of sacrifices without providing the requisite support and most critically, and I feel like I'm a stuck record on this issue, but it's even more um, important, particularly if we are looking at 19th July as a terminus date, and we're definitely lifting all restrictions, the most important thing going forward is going to be test, trace, and isolate. I mean, I've been banging on about this since Easter last year, that test, trace, and isolate is the way that we get this thing under control. Once you've got your numbers down as a result of lockdown and restrictions, the way you keep them down is by testing and tracing every every case every contact and self-isolation we know that people avoid getting tested to avoid self-isolation we know that many people just can't afford to self-isolate there's also all sorts of practical considerations around overcrowded households people with caring responsibilities I have been pressing for months for both more financial support essentially to pay people's wages a furlough type arrangement for self-isolation and practical support and interestingly it was being reported today you might might have seen in Politico playbook that actually the furlough scheme allows for people's wages to be paid, but officials have apparently asked ministers not to be publicizing this through guidance which I find absolutely shocking and I think there need to be questions answered because even Dido Harding now that you know who was head of test and trace who uh, has, has finally this month admitted that if I'd known a year ago that self-isolation was so important I would have championed it more well you know experts have been going on about this for the last year um, so I, this is a really big failure it's basic public health measures and then you ally that with our world-leading genomic sequencing capability, which should be able to track the new variants coming in. The two together should put us in a really good position um, to be lifting restrictions and keeping the virus under control. But uh, the thing that's really bothered me about uh, the pandemic handling like at a strategic level by the government right the way through is i think they've always been really focused on the the shiny sexy stuff the stuff that makes headlines whether that was building um the uh uh the, the hospitals uh, what were they called nightingales uh, Nightingales, that's it, sorry. Um, you know, at record speed to show we can do what China does and then didn't use them because they didn't have the staff which everybody knew from the outset. Or whether that's, uh, you know, we're gonna have this moonshot testing capability or we're gonna have, you know, they they were right uh, early on to invest in vaccines and, and prioritize vaccines. I remember in the first ministerial statements that Hancock made last January, he was already talking about vaccines, but even then saying, oh, it'll take several years to get there. But then they weren't focused on the basics at the same time and, and right and you know since we've since the vaccines were approved it's all been about vaccination and really taking their eye off the board, ball on border controls but also test trace and isolate and I, I realize I sound like a stuck record I'm really boring but you talk to any public health director or expert in this area and that's what they say is absolutely key and we need to be championing. I think
0: you're absolutely right about Test, Trace and Isolate, the the way the focus has shifted from it. And I think one of the reasons the focus has shifted is partly because um, Dida Harding's gone. So you haven't got this sort of um, figurehead that people can sort of relate to either way. Um, But also it's because in a way it's the logic of what the government's been saying for a long time, which was curiously, that uh, when the pandemic was really, really raging in January, February, March, um, we kept being told by Test Trace and iceland by Dida Harding, look, you shouldn't expect too much of us when this system's never been designed for when things are really on fire. It's only really designed to get, help things when the case numbers are low. Now the case numbers have been low, Test, trace and isolate, so suddenly he's not in the news anymore. And I find that really odd. Um, and there's a lack of accountability as well, because it's almost as if the government palmed it off to, to Dido Harding and now to Jenny Harris. And it's not as if the minister who's in the Lords uh, um, really helps matters because the fact he's in the Lords. If we had a minister in the Commons who was directly responsible for test, trace and isolate, I think there'd be much more of an issue. Yeah, well,
2: but in theory, Matt Hancock's in charge of it all. In theory, and, and yeah. you know, I and um, to be fair to him, jo- Jonathan Ashworth has uh, also been echoing you know, many of the questions that I've been raising, and we just we just never get responses. <laughs> it just it just it just doesn't uh, address it at all. I've noticed actually,
0: Munira, and, and one thing I have noticed in health questions, Hancock has this habit of waiting for all the questions and then answering like one in six of the questions. It's yeah. really, really strange whether it's from you, Author and, and Jonathan Ashworth. You'll see him scribbling things down and then he'll literally only answer like a, a tiny, tiny fraction of them. Is there is there any way you can kind of force him to answer?
2: No, well, I mean, well, I see it as one of the few benefits of actually as the Lib Dem spokesperson. I only get one question, yeah. whereas Labour and SNP get several minutes, so they can ask lots of questions. I, I mean, it's an old ministerial habit. You'll know that Paul from watching this for years that they will pick and choose which questions they wish to answer out of a whole list. Um, that suit them. Um, the, the, the benefit for me only having one question is I usually want to ask what, you know, one of the questions that Jonathan Ashworth has asked and it's quite often the one that hasn't been answered. <laughs> so I'm able to then follow up and, and yeah. try and go in with some precision, but he still manages to waffle his way around it. I mean, I, I, I think there's, I can probably only think of out of the hundred, many t- scores of times I've been uh, asking questions over the last year and a half, Probably, uh, the, I can count on one hand the number of times I've felt I've had a direct answer from him, and he's, he's a past master at it, um, and he gets away with it. And people say to me, why doesn't the Speaker, you know, slap him down for it or demand that he actually answers your question? But the problem is that the Speaker sees that as that's a political thing. And, and, you know, unless he decided to tell me what he'd had for breakfast that morning, as opposed to saying something about self-isolation, then I, I don't think he'd be considered out of order.
1: Yeah, just on Hancock, uh, since we're on him, uh, Dominic Cummings revealed in a blog yesterday that the Prime Minister thought Hancock was doing a hopeless job in the middle of the pandemic uh, with a series of text messages that he published. I think you left
2: out a few expletives there, (laughs) Arjun. Well,
1: yeah, uh, totally fucking hopeless was one of the texts. This is not a family show. Uh, But, I mean, regardless of what you think of Dominic Cummings and whether or not Hancock was hopeless is the fact that we now know the prime minister thinks he was hopeless in the middle of the pandemic does that make his position untenable
2: well frankly i thought his position was untenable last year when all of this was unfolding um i mean yeah in any normal world it would but in this government and in the current times we just don't see anybody really resigning when they're um terrible things are happening when they've clearly failed in their responsibilities or lost the confidence of you know of their bosses even within government. I mean, I just find it astonishing. I mean, I don't know what Johnson is waiting for, whether he's waiting to make him a full guy a, a later stage or or what. But.
1: yeah, and, and you mentioned um the, the Treasury's approach to isolation payments there and the fact that they kind of wanted to conceal the part of the furlough scheme that that well may or not conceal, but but not publicize the part of the furlough scheme that would have seen people being able to temporarily go on furlough to isolate. Um, do you think Rishi Sunak has questions to answer over this now?
2: Well, yeah, I mean it's been it's been well documented that you know, certainly in the earlier stages of the pandemic, he was the blocker on some of the actions that needed to be taken for us to get the the pandemic under control. Um so I mean, I and that's why I almost find it weird that he was the blocker on this because one of the points I've always made is not only is this an effective way to keep things under control once you have got numbers low but actually it's far far cheaper to be properly funding self-isolation than it is to go into any sort of blanket restrictions when you've got a you know Uh, bail out businesses and and support people with furlough. So to my mind, it makes absolutely no economic sense that they went down this route. And actually the self-isolation part of furlough probably would only have been a a very small chunk. And when you consider that overall 37 billion has been committed to test and trace, I know the majority of that is on testing. But again, to properly fund self-isolation, it would be a drop in the ocean when you look at those sorts of numbers. it, It makes no economic sense to me whatsoever. Um, that that he's taken this approach and yeah absolutely I mean Rishi's been very quiet and very invisible of late I mean
1: (laughs) just a final one on this as well the Lib Dems have have had a kind of tricky position in this pandemic because obviously you have strong principles of freedom and liberty but locking down early and taking away people's freedoms has been the kind of lesson of the pandemic how have you managed that
2: yeah, I think uh, philosophically it's been uh, it's been difficult for many of us, but we we're liberals, not libertarians, and there's a really important difference. I mean, John Stuart Mill talks about uh, do no harm in the context of personal liberty. Now, clearly. there is is a whole discussion to be had about, are you doing more harm through lockdown versus not through locking down? And and I think in some ways it almost becomes trickier still now as we are at that point where actually uh, there is a lower risk uh, to life and serious illness um, given the the success of the vaccination programme. But I think um, for me, certainly in the earlier part of the pandemic, it was very, very clear to me when you're going to lose thousands of lives and uh, hospitalized people make people were seriously ill that you that that yes we needed to support those restrictions, but the key thing for us right the way through has been. Um, particularly where it's been legislative measures is you know you do you the minimum that you need to do, but equally that. You'd, you have proper reviews and checks and balances on that. It's one of the reasons why with the Coronavirus Act uh, we've voted against the government a couple of times now on renewals because we know a lot of the restrictions that are put in place are not put in place through the Coronavirus Act at all. They're using regulations and the 1984 Public Health Act. The Coronavirus Act has got far, far reaching powers, many of which are not being used or have been misused at times. Uh, we had argued that it should be renewed every three months. Government initially wanted to to have it in place for two years they compromise on six months and we see absolutely no need for vast parts of that act to continue um, and actually we've said some of the important parts of that around um, healthcare professionals who are being brought in from retirement and you know licensing them to uh, work again all of those sorts of things uh, and the, the bits around furlough etc should absolutely be in uh, renewed and kept in statute and given that we've seen them ram through legislation you know, in a day or two days, they can absolutely replace it with something much slimmer, much more fit for purpose. The thing that worries me um, uh, and where I think we do make common cause with some of the the backbenchers on the Tory side, the libertarians, is the, 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 the mission creep in all of this, that once you've given up some of those freedoms, will you get them back fully? Uh, and absolutely, we should be making sure that, you know, as the threat passes, that we are, we have those freedoms fully restored and, and we've seen with protest rights that that's not the case with the, the new policing bill we're seeing now crackdown on protests and so we had clearly there was there was a, 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 a not a complete ban, but there were there was uh, you, know, we, you were a lot, a lot less able to protest under the coronavirus regulations. Now we're seeing some permanent legislation to crack down on protests. Uh, is, is one another reason why we were really concerned about COVID ID cards and vaccine passports. Once you have built that biosecurity infrastructure, how are you then going to to deploy it in the future? So that's where I'm very nervous and uh, suspicious, and will continue to challenge the government going forward.
1: Yeah, and no- noisy protests are now disallowed, which kind of causing to question the points of uh, protesting. But anyway, as we speak, voters are going to the polls in the first by-election in what is becoming rapidly known as the Tories' Blue Wall. The election in Chesham and Amersham is being seen as a key test of Boris Johnson's ability to hang on to wealthiest Southern Remain voters, while also appealing to the largely Brexit-supporting Red Wall. Internal polling this week showed the Lib Dems gaining fast on the Tories, while Paul's own sources suggest nerves at CCHQ. Let's just listen to Johnson's message when he visited the seat last week.
0: My folks, fantastic to be here in Cheshire campaigning with Peter Fleet, and I think say, Peter, we're getting a, a, a very fantastic. good response, uh, because I think what people want is somebody who
1: can carry on the, the great work of, of Cheryl Gillan, uh, make sure that we turn the children's into a national park, and all the other one things we're going to do uh, for the area.
0: Uh, vote for Peter Fleet Thursday, uh,
1: Thursday week. Um, Paul, uh, in that clip, Johnson's key messages were that Tory candidate Peter Fleet could carry on the work of previous MP Cheryl Gillan, who sadly died, and also that the Tories could turn the Chilterns into a national park. It's not quite the same as the campaigning in the Red Wall, is it?
0: No, it's very different.
1: I mean, what's interesting here is that finally
0: the media world is slowly waking up to the fact that there is life beyond the red wall and that there are many many millions of votes beyond the red wall and the blue wall in the south could could be interesting uh, it's not just the demographic changes the more liberal more metropolitan people who can't afford housing in central london moving out to lots of other places in what used to be zone six zone seven beyond um it's 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 more about also you know what kind of this 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 fabled person, the liberal t- conservative. Wh- where do they go with their votes? Traditionally, they've gone with the Lib Dems. Um, they've been a, a nice fit. Although we saw in 2015, a lot of those voters in Southwest London were, where Manira represents. You know, you saw Twickenham, you saw um, you saw uh, uh, Surbiton, you and Kingston, you saw Richmond Park. You saw them all going big, big numbers to the Tories. Massive swings. Now, that's 2015. Some of those have come back, obviously, since then. Um, but it's it still shows that, actually, this is an area, a battleground, that a lot of people fail to appreciate. And I think it's not just a few seats here and there. It could have wider implications. What I find fascinating is the sheer number of cabinet ministers have gone to the seat. They're obviously thinking it was a banker. <clears throat> you had you know, Rishi Sunak very recently just sitting there and chatting to the candidate Peter Fleet and um, and chewing the fat. And obviously it's easy to get to it. It's the end of the metropolitan line. It's easy for politicians to get there. Uh, and I think that's made it easier for the Lib Dems to pile in lots and lots of resources to be frank. And w- it feels like they might not win it <clears throat> but it feels like to me a bit like Lived Dem by elections of old where you haven't got um Lord Renard running the show but when he did run the show you know they knew what the pinch points were they knew for example in this CHS2 is a big concern they knew that planning is a big concern and they're, they're really pressing on the bruise that that affects a lot of those normal Tory voters so it will be fascinating.
1: Yeah, uh, Manira, we don't want to be out of date when this podcast goes out. It won't be out of date, but it might be in coming days. But it will be. Um, so, whether the Lib Dems win or lose this by election, what do you think? What's happening says about the Tories and the risk to their voter coalition?
2: Well, I, I'll I'll say reasonably confidently that we're going to get a big swing in our direction, whether whether we slightly fall short or or win. I mean, and, and uh, I've been. I think I've been down there five times myself, um, and uh, today is polling day when we're recording this, and I'm about to head there too. Um, And uh, it's incredible, all the feedback that I have heard. From activists um, and seen um, you know in our some of our Facebook groups is that lifelong Tory voters time after time are saying we're voting for Sarah Green for the Lib Dems uh, I've had uh previous lifelong Tory voters take what, some of our famous Lib Dem diamonds to put at the end of their gardens it's I mean it, it, when I first went around there it's just it's the sort of area that you wouldn't you would just think this is solid Tory, (laughs) I'm not going to vote anything else. But the feedback has just been tremendous and overwhelming. And it seems to follow a pattern. I mean, Paul talked about the 2019 election results. And of course, apart from the the, the, the trio we've got here in Southwest London, we we came very close to winning Wimbledon. And with a massive swing, we almost took Dominic Raab's seat. We were only a couple of thousand off from, I can't remember how many thousand we were behind, but it was five figures um so uh and then you look at the local elections uh, where we've made gains in oxfordshire and now running oxfordshire county council uh in uh, cooperation with with other parties uh similarly cambridgeshire you know we've picked up seats in places like kent we're now running St Albans, so we're absolutely making gains in what you call the tory blue wall and i think it's, it's as you've alluded to, the Tories are now so focused on the Red Wall and their culture wars that I think really appeal and and resonate in those seats, that many of those uh, people who, yes, largely voted remain in the referendum. And although it's it's not an issue anymore, I think some of those values around being uh, you know, internationalist looking, but also pro-business and uh, probably more socially liberal as well, um, are, are looking for an alternative. They certainly won't find that in the Labour Party. And we're the main challenger. And you look at Our top target seats uh, across the country, they're largely in conservative facing seats. And, you know, a a 10 percent swing in those Lib Dem conservative marginals could see us gain a whole load more seats um, and a whole bounce of power in the next election. And so that's that's where we'll be continuing to to take the fight to this government, because uh, Labour can't challenge in those seats at all.
1: Yeah, and I, I mean, what do you think it is? You mentioned the culture wars there. What do you think is turning, you know, Tory voters in these seats away from the Tories and towards lived You sort of mentioned it there, but do you think the, the the vaccine bubble has burst, or did it never exist in these places? Um, you mentioned the culture wars.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, yeah, obviously the government's still polling uh, well across the country, and some of that is the the vaccine bounce for sure. Um, but I. Yeah, I mean, Paul alluded to it. There are other issues. People aren't just thinking about the pandemic anymore. Uh, the planning reforms is a, are a huge concern um, across those sorts of areas. I mean, even Theresa May, the former Prime Minister, has been highly critical of the reforms. Um, so yeah, th- th- there's issues like that, but also things like the cut in foreign aid. Um, you know, which I see as part of that culture war, and you know, the ministers will tell us, well, actually, it's really popular, and people want us spending that money, uh, you know, in in the left-behind areas. Well, I, in in these sorts of areas, I don't think it's a, an either-or; it's a and. You know, we have a moral obligation to be uh, spending the point seven percent on uh, on foreign aid and, and looking after the world's poorest, but equally investing, you know, in our recovery up and down the country. So it's it's those sorts of issues that I think, as I say, there's just more internationalist, pro Remain uh, kind of electorate, but also pro business because remember a lot of the 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 consequences of brexit particularly for the service sector which is uh, you know these are these are largely commuter towns we're talking about places like st albans and chesham and amersham these are people who are commuting into the city every day into into service sectors which are completely uh, overlooked in the whole brexit deal and and therefore you know, they they are directly impacted by by the, some of those policy decisions by this conservative government
1: yeah, and, and given what's happening in seats like these, and Keir Starmer's kind of focus on winning back the Red Wall, do, do you think it's time for a progressive alliance with Labour to get the Tories out of government?
2: Well, I've I've never subscribed to this idea that, uh, well, for a start, we don't own any voters, okay? So I don't subscribe to this idea that if a Liberal Democrat candidate stands down in the Conservative Labour marginal, all our votes will suddenly go to the Labour Party and vice versa if they stood down for us um because you know there's plenty of soft conservatives who will vote liberal democrat but if we didn't we weren't standing would not vote for the labor party so i think you know what worked worked incredibly well when you look back to the the the, uh, late 90s was when you had you know ashdown and blair sort of having an agreement that actually in your marginal seats we're, we're going to stand candidates everywhere we absolutely should we're a national party and we have our own platform to stand on and you know if i wanted to be a labor mp i would join the labor party i you know i wouldn't be a liberal democrat we don't have the, there are areas clearly where we share the same views but lots of areas where we don't um but actually the idea that where you've got those really marginal contests you know, take our activists and put them into our own marginal contest and keep them away from those areas that we can't win. And that did not happen in uh, 2019, which is why uh, the Lib Dems actually could, we could have picked up a few more seats, I think about places place at like and Golders Green and cities of London, uh, Westminster, where we came really close. But because they had Labour defectors standing, momentum purposely sent in hordes of activists to stop the Lib Dems winning. They would rather have Conservative MPs than a Lib Dem MP because just for their own ideological reasons. And uh, so I hope there can be some of that sort of obvious campaigning cooperation. I don't I don't think you know, those alliances where we're standing down for each other necessarily work at all. And I think they're back far apart.
0: And Muneer, as as well as aid, you mentioned international aid. Is there any other particular culture war issue that you think actually has just bombed in, in places like this, that, that you know, that, that that this actually could be a referendum on the negatives of that culture war, which the government thinks is, is winning.
2: Well, I, I, I say this as a massive England football fan. I think the recent uh, debacle over football and taking the knee, and I think for most people, it's like, you know, England's in the Euros, we're hosting loads of the matches, we should be getting behind our team and not suddenly criticising them for taking the knee. I think most, uh, lots of people in these seats recognize that that there is still an issue with racism in many parts of our society and we should be doing everything that we can to to to, to combat that. Uh, And yes, you know, taking the knee doesn't necessarily uh, resolve those issues, but it is is a symbol and and, and reminding people that this is still an issue and we need to be working together to combat it rather than, you know, some of the things, you know, Tory MPs saying we're going to be boycotting these matches and we don't support them. And it's just, I just think that sort of thing really goes down like a lead balloon in many of these areas.
0: Yeah, and the yeah. England football team are certainly more diverse than Parliament, aren't
1: they?
2: <laughs> Quite. Well, Munira, can, we get,
1: can yeah. we get your prediction for England-Scotland this week?
2: Oh, well, I said to my Scottish colleagues yesterday, I said, by the way, I'm going to be really, really to you on Friday night. OK, this is where the hooligan side of me comes out. I'm not. It's the first time since becoming an MP there's been an international tournament. And I think my team are a little bit surprised, but I'm, 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 I'm hoping we'll thrash them 3-0 or something.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I hope they fumble in the goal as well. <laughs> Scottish goalie mistake. <laughs> yeah. I think, I've yeah. just lost lots of podcast listeners. Yeah, no, Apologies
1: to our Scottish listeners, <laughs> but I, I, think, I, think, I think England should win. But anyway, it's time for the quiz. Yay! And after Dominic Cummings revealed WhatsApp messages in which Boris Johnson and Matt Hancock totally effing hopeless, this week's quiz is on some of the worst political insults over the years. So just shout the answer if you know it. Who did former Labour MP Tom Watson call a miserable pipsqueak of a man in 2010?
0: Ooh, that's
1: a good one. I can give you a clue on this if you, if you want to. Yeah, I don't... yeah, go on. Current cabinet minister. Oh, must be Rhys Mogg. No, no.
2: not Reese Mogg.
1: A miserable pipsqueak. 2010. Oh,
2: Current government, There's not many. So, um Robert Buckland? You know. Dominic Robert Buckland, he's like the nicest guy in the cabinet. Well, yeah, I, I am just trying to think of people who were
1: around then who were in the cabinet. No, come on, I've got no, you. You've both failed. It's Michael Gove. Oh. Yeah. He shouted it across the room to him in the Commons, I think. um Question number two. Who was Vince Cable referring to in 2007 uh-huh. when, he, when he'd said they'd gone from Stalin? Mr. Bean. to Mr It was Gordon Bean.
2: Brown.
1: Well done, Manira. You just me to Wait, know that one
2: because it was Vince, my predecessor <laughs> and former party leader. It'd be a bit bad if I didn't yeah, know that it'd, one. It'd
1: be, Exactly, yeah. Um, final question. So, Paul can draw it or Manira can solidify her victory. In 2018, Theresa May May infamously clashed with Jean-Claude Juncker at the European Council Summit during the painful Brexit negotiations. What did she accuse him of calling her?
0: Oh, God, I remember writing this story. Oh, and when she went live on TV to denounce him, didn't she?
1: Oh, what did she say? And she was... caught on camera you could see clearly that she was mouthing you called me
2: oh what was it i I know ken clark called her a bloody difficult woman but i can't remember what (laughs) yunker called her
1: that was taken as a compliment i think at the time
2: yeah oh what's this it's on the edge of my
0: brain oh this is so Mm.
1: annoying Uh, too late it's nebulous nebulous you call me nebulous
0: that's that's such a classic Theresa May insult to get upset about. I was gonna say, it? It's not say, It's no. not it's like <laughs> nebulous. Who cares? <laughs> she was
1: very annoyed about it. Okay. It might have been a confected row uh, amid the Brexit wars, but yeah. I mean, we'll never know. A story for another day. Uh, unfortunately, that's all we have time for this week. Thank you to my guests for joining me, and make sure you subscribe to Commons People on all the usual channels, and please be sure to leave a review and get your daily dose of what's happening in Westminster by subscribing to the Warzone newsletter at bit.ly forward slash the hyphen war hyphen zone. We'll just leave you with Matt Hancock's response to the Prime Minister's WhatsApp messages.
0: Are you hopeless, Mr Hancock? I don't think so. Acast anbefaler.
1: Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmannen. Vi har lavet en ny
2: podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt.
1: Vi er skidetræt alle de der og forklarer mig der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulige ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet mod. Ind og lytte til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjovt spas med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmangel.